Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. We are finishing up. We have just a a couple more messages in Titus, and we're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Titus 3, 1 through 9. Before we hear God's great word read, let us go to him again asking for his help. Our wonderful God, you are gracious to us. We pray that by your Spirit you would graciously illuminate these texts, these verses, uh, that you would cause our minds to see the light of truth. Amen. Titus 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Oh, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Last week, we considered one of those naughty words, one of those that some have assumed to be a curse word, the word submission. And today, we look at another, perhaps naughty or pejorative, a negative word, and the word is works. And perhaps we, Protestants, children of Luther or children of Calvin, might protest and say, we are not saved by our works, but by Christ's works, and that's all there is to say. Don't say anything else. But this protest betrays our Protestant forefathers even what they stood for. Certainly, translating the Latin Bible into German was a good work, was it not? Surely, Calvin believed Geneva could do a lot more good things as they followed Christ, right? Luther wanted all of Germany to be reformed according to God's authoritative word. John Calvin worked himself to death, literally, trying to ensure that every Genevan obeyed God truly. From the heart. And so you remember, from the very beginning, Paul's letter to Titus here, his emphasis on the health of the church, the soundness of the church. Every church needs good, godly order. Every church needs healthy elders and deacons, sound men and women, and sound, healthy servants. And every person is bound by God's grace and love for him to work towards godly order. 
So how is this spirit soundness to be carried out, to be executed? How can the church be healthy and orderly? The answer we see in this text is works. Now, not any works, of course, but good works, works that are properly motivated. So we see in this text that motivated by the grace of God, God's people devote themselves to good works. Look again with me at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So since God's people are to be devoted to good works, this assumes that there are bad works. There are good works, there are bad works. What are bad works? But those that fail to meet the standard of holiness set forth by the holy law of God. Now, good works are those works that God has commanded his people to perform and done with a right heart and with a right aim. As John tells us, sin is lawlessness. So obedience is lawfulness. It is rejection, sin is, is a rejection of the pure, holy law of God. As Paul encourages Titus' people to be devoted to good works, he highlights their and our former sins. Paul's list in these verses is not complete. It is not an exhaustive list. If you were to have an exhaustive list, perhaps every page of Scripture would just be a list of all of our abominations. We have many sins, thought, word, and deed. But truly, we see some of our sins have made this list. Speaking evil about other people. Quarreling. Generally speaking, disobedience. Being led astray by our passions and pleasures. Spending our days with malice and envy in our hearts. Hating other people. Spending our energy and our resources on foolish, unprofitable Worthless arguments. Now, do you remember when you were not a believer in Christ? Do you remember your former course of the world, your way of doing things? And can you now say with eyes that have been enlightened by the law of God that you disobeyed the Lord of holiness? That how things were, were awful, abominable, wicked, grievous, heinous? Can you say that? Can you say that it was your will to do the works of the devil, your former father, and that you liked doing those things? Satan didn't have to twist your arm. Flesh was already in you, moving you to wickedness, moving you to destruction. And we who have been redeemed from lawlessness, ungodliness, are to pursue purity. We've been seeing in chapters 2 and 3. We bemoan our bad works. We lament how we spent so much of our days doing evil. The thief on the cross was saved at the last hour. Thanks be to God. But how he lived was worth lamenting. He deserved to be on that cross. All of us deserve to be on a cross. 
Let us then praise our Lord for his saving grace and always keep in mind our sinful past. Paul kept his sinful past in mind. It was regularly a feature of his testimony, of the of how far he has veered off the path of righteousness and how much then the grace and mercy of the Lord that pierced his heart. I'm one of those Christians who don't know exactly when they were converted. Some of you have have heard this before, but my mother led me to the Lord while I was sitting on a beanbag at a very young age, perhaps age of four or five. Regardless, how I lived either showed that I was not converted in the first place or that, naturally, I had only just begun. Over the years, I never openly denied God. I never said, just enough with this Jesus guy. I'm done with him. What has he done for me? But I can tell you that my conduct looked more like hating others than loving them. My body was willing to spend its energy and God's gifts of the day on various passions and pleasures that would cause some to shudder. Oh, how wicked the heart is that delights in evil. And regularly, the elders and I have the privilege of hearing testimonies of everyone who wants to become a communing member of this church, of Christ's church. And every testimony differs in its particulars. But essentially, there is a past life, however long or short, it's a past life of disobedience, of wickedness, of sin, of following passions, sinful pleasures, of enslavement to idolatry. This disobedience is always grievous to the hearts of those sinners turned saints. And in a recent interview, I won't tell you with whom I had this conversation, but leave it up to your imagination. When I was covering one of these vows with this individual and dug a little deep concerning the sins of their past, there was a very noticeable reaction on this person's face, reaction of sadness. Tears began to form on their face. What should we do with these tears? Should we say, oh, don't cry? No, we say, we say that's good. Let those tears of sorrow for sin flow from our eyes. Eyes that at once see the horrors of our sin and see the face of our loving Savior who wipes away our tears with his nail-pierced hands. Oh, the abomination of our past life. Oh, the abundance of grace of our Savior. Certainly we are not to be devoted to bad works now that we've been saved. But now we should also make the distinction between good works and what I like to call not good works, as opposed to overtly evil, bad works. Now what I mean is not that bad works differ in their wicked essence or substance from not good works. They have the same family origin, namely the flesh, namely the devil. What I'm referring to instead are those works that look good on the surface, but they lack God's saving grace. Some of our badness is covered with whiteness and 
cleansed with water. Rightly, it could be said of us that we are whitewashed tombs. Not good works are those that some theologians have called civil goodness. If you look at them on the surface, if you look at the people who are doing these civil these acts of civil goodness, they are in outward compliance to the law of God. And so they look much better than they really are. But the works aren't good works. Those are not good works. They're actually bad works because they have a bad motive and a bad aim. When you look at the lives of some of your neighbors, friends, co-workers, family members, their outward behavior might put genuine Christians to shame. I often think of the Latter-day Saints in this category. One of the appeals of Latter-day Saint faith is their proper emphasis on family. They, they love family. Now, they have a theological reason for that, which is different from our theological reason. They believe that families last forever. They're eternal. Marriages are eternal if you get married in the temple. So you really better invest in family now. So they lead good families, at least again on the surface. They don't drink or smoke or chew or run with girls who do. Our minds might turn to popular cultural analysts like Jordan Peterson, who tears up at the the idea of the human body being desecrated by the world, this whole transgender movement, or who is enraged at the feminization of men. And he rightly tears up. We might think of a Ben Shapiro, whose quick and keen wit and penetrating analysis have done much to stem the tidal waves of the world that would soon engulf a society under another flood of abominations. Or perhaps our minds might turn to the legalistic Pharisees who cross all of their theological T's but who hate the cross of Christ and who do everything for the I, for the self, for the praise of man. Thomas Parr in his book, Joy in Dark Places, helps the reader to see how many shapes legalism can take in the heart and actions of the person. Now his book is not per se on legalism, but he has a chapter on legalism, and basically he defines legalism as disbelief in, even dislike toward a gracious God. And he lists several forms of legalism works based legalism. You do good works, and in the end, you are declared righteous by God. This classic works righteousness, classic legalism, if you will. My good works will earn me the righteousness of God. Or there's faith-focused legalism. This has more of a spiritual uh, shine to it, if you will. Faith is our goodness before God, though not Christ's righteousness. Faith is my contribution to the complex of salvation. And if I believe, then I should have some credit for believing. It's my contribution. That's legalism. Because after all, faith itself is a gift from God. There is uncertain salvation legalism. This idea that obedience is necessary not to get saved, but to stay saved. And so we're always then lacking assurance. Because who of us could ever Fulfill the law perfectly. If this, were, if this were true, if uncertain salvation legalism were true, then all of us would have no sense of assurance at all. No grounding 
of security. There is externalism, that focus on the outward compliance, not on an inward devotion to Jesus. Pharisees were often rightly charged with this kind of legalism. They thought, hey, if if the command says don't murder, so I've not murdered anyone. I've not taken a knife to someone. Jesus says, no, 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 it's more than that. If you've even spoken ill of your brother, you've murdered them in your heart. Or there's wrong priority legalism. Again, the Pharisees, Sadducees were often accused of this rightly. They were majoring on the minors or minoring or denying the majors. Jesus, you'll remember, say, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Well, there is tradition exalting legalism. You require of everyone submission to your specific applications, throwing the idea of Christian liberty out the window. I live the perfect Christian life, so you must do exactly as I do, making your traditions of man the very commandments of God. That is a form of legalism. Or there is self-sufficient legalism. This is no conscious dependence on the Spirit who indwells and strengthens us. Maybe the Spirit was necessary to regenerate us, to give us new life. But now he's done that, it is up to me to live, to grow. I am enough, as the tattoo says. Again, you are not enough. But Christ is. So in a word... We earn God's favor by our works, in a word of legalism, okay? We earn God's favor by our works because we cannot stand a purely gracious God. Have you given in to legalism, any of its soul-harming forms? Ask yourselves these questions. Do I find it hard to forgive other people? Do I find it hard to rejoice when someone is praised? Do I feel like God loves me more when I perform well and less when I do not? Is God taking that flower petal, the flower, and saying, I love him, I love him not, I love him, I love him not? And each of these petals is representative of your good works or bad works. That's a bad work, love him not. It's a good work, totally love him. No. Do I emphasize what I am supposed to do more than what Christ has done for me? Do I compare myself favorably with other people and so despise them? Oh, look what they're not doing. These are all manifestations of a legalistic spirit. And if we're honest, there is a legalistic spirit in all of us from time to time. But all of this righteousness amounts to a bloody menstrual cloth before the judge of all the earth. Bad works are certainly to be avoided, but so are not good works. And we confess all those works that have the shine of godliness, but deny the sure work of the Son and the Spirit. Any work, if it is not fueled by grace, if it is not carried out through faith in Christ, if it does not have its aim to glorify God alone has fallen short of the glory of a good work that has been prepared for you to do. Grace, faith, glory. 
These works, these not good works will not do. And they are not worthy of our wholehearted devotion. As R.C. Sproul reminds us, it is the theologian's duty to make distinctions. And since, as Sproul also says, everyone is a theologian, we make necessary distinctions between or regarding good works. We see in this text, in verse 5, that they are not the basis for our salvation. Again, verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Because there was nothing good in us done by in righteousness. Now, we Protestants are really good at emphasizing this point. We say we are saved unto good works, not because of good works. Good works are the effect of salvation, never the cause. Or to turn Luther's phrase, the faith that saves is never alone, but we are saved by faith alone. As one man said, if we were to be saved by works, everyone is hosed. Or as someone who I interviewed earlier, when I asked her, are you, sa- are you saved by works? And she says, no, it doesn't work like that. I think that was a pun unintended. But the point well taken. There were no good works done until Christ appears in our hearts. God did not look down into time and see what good things we would do and say, well, that's a pretty good lad. Let's choose him. This includes the good work of faith. Again, because faith is a gift from God. So whether you are a Frank Sinatra literally singing your own praise, I did it my way, or driving under the influence of William Ernest Henley's poetic Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, either way, your way leads to eternal death. The true captain of your soul, Satan, is happy for you to believe that your soul is unconquerable. But it isn't until, by his mercy, the Son sends the Spirit to wash us clean, give us new spiritual life, that we can begin to bear fruit. Because only those branches that are attached to the vine, which is Christ, can bear fruit. So these good works are not the basis of our salvation. But as we see in verse 7, they are gifts from God. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This Christ vine, because of his good heart, has poured upon us by his spirit good gifts. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God that appeared brought us salvation And this is the grace now by which we are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, sinful pleasures, the very lifestyle to which we were willingly enslaved before Christ's powerful grace overcame us. Graciously, mightily, he changed our legal standing by giving us Christ's righteousness, by justifying us, by declaring us righteous in his sight. By grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, are we declared righteous. Justification is not an end in itself. It's not the final point. We say, well, once I'm justified, now the life of the Christian is over. No, it is a a means to an end. And what is the very end? It is the glorification of God in all that we do, in all that we are. 
The Christian life, living the Christian life, is not exclusively remembering our identity in Christ. It is foundationally that. But often our Reformed Protestant brothers would say, if you want to grow, if you want to be sanctified, here here it is. Just remember who you are in Christ. Remember whose you are. And then they stop. That's the start. You're now abiding in the vine because Christ has declared you righteous, because you have his righteousness. Yes, you are his. If you are not his, you do, you do not bear fruit. But recalling your justification is not all that God has given to stir us up to love and good deeds. He's given us so many ways, so many commands, threats even, promises, yes. The word of God is bigger than just remembering whose we are and who we are. These good works we see in verse 8 are excellent in themselves. He says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. So we are to pursue good works because they're excellent. And pardon the obvious, but good works are good. We pursue the good for the sake of the good. We devote ourselves to good works because our lives have been oriented now to the good. Now, a question always worth asking a married couple or one that would soon to be a married couple is, why marry? Not as a challenge, why do you want to get married? But as an inquiry, why do you want to get married? What do you see in her? What do you see in him? What has drawn you two together? Surely many secondary or tertiary goods come from the marital union. Financial security, sexual intimacy, children, common vocational goals, and and all the rest. But basically, the man, the woman, ought to say, I love them. That is it. I want to know them more. And someone says, well, unto what end? Why do you want to know them more? No, no, they're the end. I love them because I love them. I'm not using them to get to someone else, to get to something else. They are the object of my affection. And to know God is the greatest good of all the goods. You don't try to get to know him to get to someone else. He is the good. And good works represent his life, his character. They demonstrate who he is and what he has done. And so we follow our God by doing good works. And we get to know him more. Good works are excellent in themselves. They are also, as we just read in verse 8, blessings to others. They are profitable for others. And so we are to pursue good works because they bless other people. Our good works have real, tangible effects, profitable ones for one another. This word profit is used by Paul elsewhere in 2 Timothy 3. You remember that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have the word of God in all its fullness for your equipment. 
for every good work. Yes, for your growth in Christ-likeness, but also for the good of another. We depend on the Holy Spirit, his word to guide us into all truth, that we might obey him and that we might be blessings for other people. Now, you don't have to be a Christian for long before you are blessed by another person's good deed. And perhaps maybe uh, you weren't a Christian and a Christian did a good thing for you and that woke you up. That good kindness was meant to lead you to repentance and so by the grace and power of God, you were led to repentance. I was talking recently with one of our own who told me how Cross Creek, this is years ago, had blessed him and his wife. They were forced to stay in a hotel for a couple of weeks, stay close to the hotel for, for medical reasons, but money was tight, and they didn't know how they were going to cover all of the hotel costs. So one day, the pastor and a few others came for a visit, and when they left, they gave him a check. Now, this couple didn't ask for any money, but the church blessed this couple with this money. And it turns out the check covered almost exactly the cost of the hotel with just a dollar to spare. How will your good actions be profitable to your dear brother or sister in Christ? Might it be financial assistance? Might it be a home-cooked meal? Might it be inviting them over for a Thanksgiving meal this week? Might it be uninterrupted time with them? Might it be bringing them to a doctor appointment? Might it be a word of encouragement from God's precious word? Or use your sanctified imagination? It could be any of these or others. Find ways to bless others by your good works. And oh, there are so many examples. I could spend the rest of this day bragging on you. Boasting in the Lord alone, of course, but praising God for his mighty work in and through you, how you guys sometimes, and very silently, often, are blessing other people. Praise be to God. And certainly these good works have a godly effect, encouragement in the brothers and sisters. Good works are worthy of all godly effort. The beginning of verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. All good works are worthy of all our godly effort. We are to be reminded regularly to be careful to be devoted to good works. Like the player who was on the bench itching to get onto the field, our bodies, our, our souls, our resources are at the ready to be put into play for the profit of another and to the praise of of God. And so this is why Titus is to insist on good works. Not in any kind of heavy-handed way. Are you doing good works, church member? You better be doing good works. That's not how God motivates us. Let's look at Christ. Look what he has done. Look at your brother and sister in need. Do you not want to help? Do you not want to display compassion? And so do not be quick, dear ones, to label as legalism any exhortation from your elders or your brothers and sisters to do good works. It is the duty of all Christians, and especially the duty of elders, to stir everyone up to love and good deeds. Let us then be careful to be devoted to good works, 
to not be weary in well-doing. And because of temptation, faithfulness is a lifelong challenge, but one that does get easier with time and with training in the grace of God that renounces lawlessness. At bottom, we are devoted to good works because our Lord and Savior was devoted to good works. Our Son, the Son of God, our Savior, was devoted to the will of his Father. And oh, the will of his Father was a good will, was it not? To save a people. He elected a people and he said, Son, this is the people for whom you will live and die and rise. And the Son says, that's a good will. Let's do it. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit to make application of the Son's work, his good work, his work on the cross to the point of death, yes, even on a cross. And through our godly conduct, we're told from Peter that we hasten the coming day of the Lord. I cannot think of a better reason to pursue godliness than seeing Christ. Can you? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have saved us by the power of your grace and mercy through the ministry of the Son and the sealing of redemption by the Spirit. We thank you for that good work, that necessary work of Jesus Christ, without which we would not be saved. And so we ask, Lord, that you help us now to Be careful to be devoted for every good work. And we thank you, Father, that you have from before the foundation of the world prepared for us good works, that we might walk in them. Help us, Lord, to see them, identify them, and so walk in humble reliance on the Spirit. Amen.